Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Uh, the last time I tried to do a show was the beginning of January, and something happened. There was a glitch. So for those of you who tried to listen to show number 252, Ideas for Toddlers Who Don't Sit Still for Speech Therapy, we're going to do it again, and I so appreciate those of you who messaged me and emailed me and let me know that there was a glitch. I had no idea because I do not go back and listen to these shows. That kind of drives me crazy a little bit to hear myself like that. So, again, if you uh, wrote me to let me know that that wasn't working, I so, 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 so appreciate it because we don't we don't know about technical difficulties unless someone tells us about it. So we're going to try to do this show again. Let me make some really quick announcements. Um, Today is January 27th, 2015, and if you are in Kentucky or near Kentucky, I want to let you know that I am speaking at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing uh, Convention, the annual convention, the end of February. It's Thursday, February 26th from 2 o'clock until 5.15, so I have one of those longer sessions this time. I'm so excited to be an invited speaker there. And today I got a preliminary head count. It looks like we're going to need a ballroom. There are going to be so many people there. So wanted to let you know about that opportunity for you. And I I don't think I have a link to um, information about Kish's convention this year at teachmetotalk.com, but I will put that up. So if you are interested in coming for that session, um, you certainly are invited. We'd love to have you. I'm going to be talking about that day, a new, kind of new topic for me, which is uh, using play to enhance speech language development. So we're really going to be breaking down stages of play. Now, if you are a longtime podcast listener, I did a series of shows about this topic in, I, it may have been 2011 or 2012, sometime a couple of years ago. So I've, I've been bantering this information around and looking at it and, and really deciding how to best present this information. And I've talked about it again on that series of podcasts a couple of years ago, three years ago, four years ago, however long that was. Um, so you can go back and listen to it then. But I really, um, I don't want to say repackaged it because that's not correct. But I've assimilated other pieces about play that I found, some with typically developing children. Because remember, we always need to hold so that we understand how and when and why a child with atypical patterns or challenges with development, how they kind of differ from what we would expect. And again, that's not to say that we don't recognize that every child is innately different and that we appreciate differences in children and individuality and creativity and all that. Of course we do. Again, that's probably one of the reasons that if you are a pediatric therapist, why our job is so cool and why you were attracted to this in the first place is because not every kid is alike. You know, we we don't, I I would be bored half to death if I had to see the same kid and, and look, if all kids look the same, you know, that's what makes this job so exciting and so 
fun is that individual variability that we see from child to child to child. However, we do know that there are general patterns that are pretty predictable in child development, and that's what makes us able to pinpoint areas where a child may be struggling. So I've done this whole um, body of work, and uh, I've just been drowning in research. And I don't say drowning sounds negative, but I've been, how can I say that? I've been relishing all the new research and the new information and the new pieces that I've pulled together with this information on play. And so the first time I'm going to teach that will be in that three-hour format at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing Convention. So if you are near Louisville and can get there then and want to join us for that day, it's the afternoon session on the 26th. For those of you who are thinking, well, there's no way I can get there, um, I'm going to be teaching it this summer live. We don't have our conference uh, schedule out yet. We're still kind of working on dates, deciding where we're going to go, putting all those last-minute uh, touches and plans on there. So if you want to see it live, hopefully I'm coming to a place near you. If not, we're putting the course on DVD, and there will, of course, be a book about it. And so even if you don't want to do the course, you can get the book. If you don't want to get the book, you can get the course, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I'm going to have lots of opportunities for you to look at that information and digest it and decide what's relevant for you so that you expand your knowledge base if you are a speech-language developmental interventionist or EI specialist or whatever you call yourself in your state. So look for that information coming out. I'm hoping I'll have that out by spring, March or April. So take a look at it, but it's what I'm finishing it up. And it's one of the reasons that I haven't been able to do the podcast the last few weeks because I am just immersing myself in this project to get it wrapped up and get it finished. So that's, that's kind of a, a long explanation of why there have been some weeks without a podcast. And I do want to share my excitement about that project, though, because it's, it's excellent information for you if you are a therapist. Now, if you're a mom listening to the show, you don't need to feel left out <laughs> because this information is valuable for you too. And actually, in a lot of ways, it's even more valuable because you can look at exactly where your child is functioning and decide, hey, these are some cool things I can do with him. These are some new toys and new activities that I haven't thought about before. Or you'll decide, I've been playing at a level that's too complex for him. No wonder he runs away from me. No wonder he doesn't seem like he likes toys because I haven't found that sweet spot. So this information will be so relevant if you are a parent of a child with speech-language delays. And I, I want to mention that too. You'll get to, get to uh, have information that will totally enhance the things that you're already doing to help your child learn to communicate. And certainly every thing a child learns, every skill, whether it's a motor skill, a cognitive skill, a language skill, whatever he's working on, all of that can certainly be embedded in the context of play. So super, super excited about this upcoming project. As you can tell, because I've gone on and on about it right now, uh, but I wanted to let you know that's coming. Okay, let's get to today's topic. Let's talk about ideas for toddlers who don't sit still <laughs> for you to work with them. And guys, if this, if you're a parent and this is happening to you, let me just say, that is more the norm 
than the exception. Sometimes a mom will email me, and that's what's generated this whole show. A mother emailed, and she said, I can't get my child to sit still to work with me. Now, she said he'll sort of do it for his speech pathologist, but she said she she really is not able to work with him at home because he feels like she holds his attention. So I wrote a paragraph or two back to this mom, and then I thought, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but I don't know that I've ever packaged it in this kind of way. And I think the last time, the first time I tried to do this topic a few weeks ago, I went back and tried to find a podcast to see if there was an exact title um, with with for this topic so that I could send it to her, and there wasn't. So I thought, even though we've talked about this topic in bits and pieces over the years, <laughs> I probably haven't done a show with this title before, or at least I couldn't find it. So even if I did, here's maybe what I hope is a new twist on that. And hopefully if you are a parent, you can glean some ideas from this topic that you can use with your own child. And certainly if you are a therapist, oh my goodness, how many kids do you chase every single day? (laughs) Because this is pretty normal for our little guys who struggle with learning to understand and use language. And Really, it's normal for every toddler. Kids aren't really developmentally ready to sit for more than a few minutes at a time without full adult support when they're toddlers. And that's why successful preschool teachers and successful if um, a daycare program has some times that are a little bit or if their schedule is a little bit more formalized than just, you know, here's some toys, kids, go play until lunch. If they have some different times, the really successful teachers and the most targeted, developmentally appropriate programs leave lots of opportunities for children to move about the space and for kids not to stay confined and not to, they're not, the expectation is that they would not stay with something for very long when they're one and two and three because developmentally they're just not there yet. Uh, The exception would be if it's something that a child is totally interested in, that that the topic or whatever he's doing, whatever his toy is or his activity or perhaps even a show, but we'll talk about that in a minute, a DVD, something he's watching visually. Usually it has to be intrinsically motivating for a child to want to stay. Now, intrinsically may not be a word that you're aware of if you're a parent. That just means internal. It means it's his or her own idea. It's why a child would want to stay with that. So certainly we'll see periods of that with children you know, from the time that they're babies and certainly on into toddlerhood. But let me just say, once a child becomes mobile, that power of being able to control where they Day is intoxicating, especially for new walkers. It's really, really hard sometimes if you are working with a child who is newly mobile. And all of you speech and language pathologists, I can feel you nodding your heads right now, or I can feel you kind of snickering, because sometimes a mom, you know, first, of course, the natural progression is usually kids walk and then they talk but sometimes we're seeing a child pretty early on in that process and moms will kind of say something like um you know they'll they'll, the expectation is they're going to blurt out a whole 
you know, really, really, really start to talk before they walk. And we know that that's usually not true. The child is going to walk first. And then when you're working with a new walker, sometimes I just kind of want to say, hey, mom, I'll be back in three months <laughs> when this walking thing is not so new because it's all they want to do, walk and then run. And I'm just, I'm just kidding about that. But, again, the natural drive to move, let me say what I'm kidding about. I'm kidding about the telling the mom I'll be back in three months. Because we know, you know, consistent services, blah, blah, blah. But we know for a period of time for a new walker, that drive to explore and that natural curiosity is going to overwhelm any other desire that child may have. So I kind of laugh about that, you know, with, with moms, too, and saying, you know, hey, this is normal for him to want to move. And I always kind of jokingly say, you know, I need to call that PT and say, let's slow this train down a little bit, which, again, that's a joke. Don't take that too seriously. Because once they really do become mobile, they should want to move about, and they should be mobile before or especially mobile before for a kid who really was pretty late to walk or crawl or roll or sit and somehow move themselves from space to space, you know, that natural drive is there, so we have to let them do it. And again, that is a part of being um, a toddler. Learning, learning how to do that, learning how to, how to control when you sit and when you move. So it's really uncommon for a child to want to sit down for a long, long, long periods of time. So if you're a mom of a busy kid, I hope that's going to make you feel better. That's pretty expected. So movement is kind of a natural thing that we would want to see a child do. So, again, we've kind of established that that, that not wanting to sit still is pretty common. Uh, and so let's talk about other reasons beyond that, hey, it's what toddlers do, uh, for why a child might not be able to sit for even shorter periods of time. It all kind of boils down to how their sensory system is wired. And I'm a speech-language pathologist, not an OT, not an occupational therapist. So this will not be as detailed or as in-depth an explanation as you would get from an OT. Let me just kind of explain it, though, in the way that I explain it to parents. And so when we have a kid who is really, really busy, extra busy, needs that extra movement, is constantly running and jumping and throwing himself into pieces of furniture and walls and other people or the kids, you know, who, again, have to climb up on the back of the couch and jump off 55 times before they even have an inkling that they should sit down and rest for a little bit. Those kids usually, again, have sensory system differences that exceed, that go far beyond that natural tendency to move as we've already talked about toddlers have. So how I would explain that to a parent is say, you know, he's got this internal drive to move. It could be, and again, without seeing a particular child, you really don't know why he may be so busy or on the go all the time. These are just some a few of the possibilities that are most commonly noted in children, and again, lots of times children with speech-language delays also exhibit sensory processing differences that you might want to want to look for. And if you're a therapist, you certainly should make yourself aware of this. And if you didn't get this information in grad school, and I know lots and lots and lots of programs are doing a better job of teaching this 
theory or this explanation. But if you didn't get that, and if this is new to you, I would totally encourage you to do some other independent reading or take some continuing education courses about sensory processing in children because, frankly, I don't know how you do this job without a basic understanding of the sensory differences that we could see in our kids who exhibit delays in other developmental areas. So one reason a child, one kind of child, one kind of sensory processing difference would be that kid, a kid who would have to move a lot to stay regulated. What do I mean by regulated? I mean that he feels right. His little body feels good. He feels like himself when he feels most happy and alive and whatever other adjective you want to put on there, other descriptor, that's just who he is. That's just what he does. He's been fidgety from the beginning. Even as a newborn, he was constantly kind of thrashing about. Maybe Sometimes I'll say that to mom, and mom will say, you know what? When I was pregnant with him, I knew that he was going to be like this because I could feel him roll. He kicked. He moved all the time. The only, you know, I, I kind of knew from the beginning that it would be this way. And so, again, when I talk to parents about this, as a therapist, it may not suit you to think about, you know, that's just how a kid is wired or how they're made. You might sort of think about it as typical versus atypical. But using an explanation like that for a parent, I think is that I, I like it. And I think a lot of parents feel comfortable in that because they feel like, well, that's just a part of who he is. It's not right or it's not wrong. It's just who he is. And so I like talking about it in that way because it kind of lets them know, too, hey, you may not be able to do too much about this. Now, we certainly can use strategies and, and treatment methods that would help a child learn to regulate a little more and calm down a little more and be able to sit with us for a little longer period of time. And certainly maturity, we hope, will do that leg a lot. I would say that's me. I'm raising my hand right now. <laughs> you know, that if you're in a, no matter what's going on, you kind of, you're a jiggler. You're kind of always moving. Or maybe you know someone who is always chewing gum. An adult friend of yours. Yeah, those are people who also need movement. You may know somebody in your life who is an exercise addict. They have to run before they feel good or ride their bike or whatever or go to a, you know, a kickboxing or whatever. Go to some kind of class. Certainly our <laughs> adrenaline junkie friends who um, climb mountains and, and do all of those extreme kinds of sports. Somebody who might, through the winter, schedule their whole life around whether they can go ski or not. Those, again, those people who do kind of extreme uh, sports participation. Those folks may have looked like this when they were toddlers. And again, that's just kind of the way that they're, they're set up. That's what their little bodies like. That's what they, and again, this has its roots. Usually back from the very beginning. So sometimes it's that a kid has to move because he has really poor body awareness, meaning that if he's not moving around, he's not quite sure where his little body is, where his arms and his legs and his feet are. When he's running, he knows where his feet are. They're on the floor and then coming up and then going back down on the floor again. So that might be another reason. 
sometimes our children who are low arousal, meaning that their systems, unless there's a lot going on, they're apt to kind of shut down. Sometimes our low arousal, or again, they just kind of drift off in their own little world. As infants, they might have gone to sleep really easily. Or if there's not much going on around them, again, they're they're not checked in. So a lot of times we'll kind of see that even with our, our little low arousal friends. If they've learned, hey, to keep myself going here and to keep myself in this, I've got to move a lot. So there could be any number of reasons that a child would be busy or seek movement a lot. So you'll just have to decide <laughs> why a child does it. And again, it doesn't really matter. It does matter why a kid does it, but it kind of doesn't because we need to make sure that we are looking with, you know, we're not going to be able to really change a lot of that with a pill or, you know, you do something one time with a kid and then he's chilled out for the rest of his life. That's not going to happen. So we have to know how to manage that and in a lot of cases even use it to our advantage. So I gave you that that point of reference or that little explanation or discussion there just so that you'll kind of think about the different reasons and, again, not so that you can fix it per se, but that you'll just recognize what it is and that you'll recognize that, again, it's an internal set point that you may not be able to do a lot about. Now, that's not to say that a really skilled occupational therapist can't help, won't be able to teach you about that and, again, be able to teach you how to use it, what to do about it, how to how to help a child who's really on the the highest end of that continuum who just runs for, you know, you feel like he's awake for 14 hours a day and he may run 12 of those 14 hours. <laughs> you know, you may need some help with those kinds of kids, and an OT can certainly do that, but my, my overriding point that I want you to take away from here is a lot of this is just who the kid is and we have to learn how to work within that without thinking that we're going to change it or you know do something to make that magically disappear because really really you're not so let's talk about um, how we can move toward working with our little friends or your child who needs to move, move, move. What are some things that we can do with those busy little friends or children, if they're your own, to really keep their attention and have them learn to stay with you so that they can learn from you? And we all know that it's so much easier to teach a kid to do anything, whether it's talk or understand a word or or put together a puzzle or anything when he's close to you rather than away from you. So it is an important developmental skill, and we want to do everything we can to move toward that, still appreciating a child's need for movement and knowing, again, that that's just part of it. That's just what we'll need to continue to do. And let me say one more thing. I always, no matter what I'm talking about, usually work this topic into the conversation. And it's a topic about can't versus won't. And if you've listened to this show for a while, you'll know I'm usually talking about that. And a lot of moms will say, or dads, usually, <laughs> he just won't talk. He will not 
talk, meaning he's refusing to talk. He's purposely choosing not to talk. And I have this whole article about it and this whole discussion that I do, no matter what class I'm teaching or where I'm talking or to who the audience is, is that we have to really differentiate can't versus won't. And usually it's that not that the child won't talk, it's that he can't talk. Same premise applies here. It's not that the child won't sit still. He doesn't really sit in his crib in the morning and think, hmm, now that therapist is coming today and I don't care what she's going to bring. I don't care what fun thing she decides we're going to do or if you're a mom. I don't care where my mom wants me to go today or what she wants me to do or what fun thing she has up her sleeve for me today. I'm just going to run from her every chance I get. You know, that would be a kid who won't sit still. Toddlers can't think that way. You, they don't really sit there and ponder, how can I push her buttons today? What can I do to make her life crazy today? They are not capable of that. But sometimes we think they are, don't we? <laughs> or we'll, we'll say, he's just doing this to get me. He's just doing this to annoy me. He knows this bothers me. It's never about you, okay? <laughs> it's always, always, always about that kid because that's cognitively and emotionally and developmentally where he is. That's who they are. They're not mature enough to be able to think like that, to plot against you. <laughs> so if you've thought that before or you find yourself even kind of subconsciously or in the back of your mind thinking that, let that go, it's not really that he won't sit still. Usually it's that he can't sit still yet or we haven't found the things that he overrides that natural tendency to move. We haven't found anything that's bigger than that, anything that he would want to do more than that. So that's certainly something that we have to think about even when we're looking at something like sitting. If you want a reference on that can't versus won't, if you would like to look at more information about that, particularly as it applies to late talking, check out an article called can't versus won't, and it's at my website, which is teachmetotalk.com, and so you can just pop on there, and in the upper right-hand corner, there's a search bar or a search little box, so just type can't versus won't there, and scroll down until you find that article and read it, and it really is a philosophical change, and a lot of times that's the first thing that we as speech-language pathologists and other early interventionists need to do with a family is help them shift from my child is purposely choosing not to acquire these developmental milestones like sitting still and talking or walking or any kind of fine motor, whatever skill you want to put in there. Usually it's that they aren't able to do it yet, not that they're purposely choosing not to do it. So, again, take a look at that because that's kind of the overall reaching philosophical point that I want us to think about when we are even looking at something like sitting. Okay, so what are the specific ideas? First of all and foremost, when you are trying to get a child who doesn't want to stay with you or sit with you, when you're trying to encourage them to do that, you've got to offer something that they like, things that you don't like to do. Have you thought about it like that before? <laughs> How many of you do things for long periods of time, and I'm talking about leisure activities here, not housework and ironing and, you know, all those things, washing the car, whatever we have to, yard work, whatever we have to do. I'm not talking about that as an adult. 
But if you have your choice, do you choose to do things that you don't really like, especially if it's a hobby or in free time? Absolutely not. You spend your time doing things you enjoy, things you love, things you're good at, things that interest you. And so certainly we need to make this our starting point, especially in the beginning with therapy with excuse me, toddlers that we're working with. We have to pick activities that they enjoy. Now, again, that's common sense, but guess what? It's also evidence-based practice. And if you're a speech-language pathologist or another kind of pediatric therapist, you know what that means. And for you moms, evidence-based practice means that someone has researched it and decided (laughs) that there's support based on studies with children, which means this is a good idea, this technique works. And so doing something a child likes is actually evidence-based. If you'll uh, take a look, the reference is February 2011, and it's the Journal of Speech and Hearing, so that's the publication for uh, speech pathologists. I hope I'm saying that journal name. I hope I'm giving that whole journal name. I don't have the reference right in front of me. Uh, but you can you can look at it. The author's name, I believe, is Patton, P-A-T-T-E-N or P-A-T-T-O-N. And I cannot believe I didn't look that reference up before we started. If you can't find it, if you're trying to look at that that reference, email me, and I'll be sure to dig out the correct author and journal name. But I digress. Let's keep talking about the study. The number one recommendation that the authors, and this was a retrospective study, a review study, meaning that they went back and uh, the set of researchers took other people's projects, other people's studies, and looked at the best ways to keep a, a young child's attention. And I believe this study um, included children who were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders and possibly children also who were young children who were at risk for that diagnosis. So it may not have even been diagnosed yet, but certainly that that diagnosis was looming. We can take this research, though, and really apply it to young children in general because all young kids, and actually we could even probably mark out young kids and say people, like to do what they like. You're going to spend more time in something that you are interested in versus something that you don't care anything about. So number one rule with toddlers, do what they like. So how do we figure that out? Well, again, kind of common sense, but if you're a therapist going in, especially if this is your first full-aged background to move to early intervention or adults, and you've decided now you're going to have to shift in career, which I know a lot of listeners do because you email me and say, thank goodness I found your site and your podcast because this has saved my life this year. Or this, You know, you taught me what I didn't learn in grad school or what I forgot that I learned. Um, and so you're really kind of figuring out and you're new to early intervention and working with toddlers and you're trying to even kind of acquaint yourself with what what toddlers like to do. First and foremost, ask the mom, ask dad, ask grandma, whoever you're working with, what does he like to do? What are his favorite toys? What are his favorite activities? And that really is something you should be asking as a part of the assessment process so that you know what a kid likes to do. Now, if you are seeing a child at home 
and I, that's going to be a natural thing for you to really find out about and for you to really be able to kind of join in because at home he's going to do what he likes to do anyway. And he'll have his favorite toys and materials there. And, again, that's one of the reasons of the the no toy bag people like to recommend that and say that because they want you starting with what a kid already likes. So ask mom that. Stick to that. If you know that he loves playing with cars and trucks and trains and those little manipulative vehicles, play with that at first because guess what? Here's the thing. You can work your goals and your focus into anything. The materials really other than him liking the materials, the materials really don't matter. We should be skilled enough to use our strategies with any kind of toy or with any kind of activity, okay? So start, though, with doing what he likes because that makes most sense. And maybe over time you'll be able to move toward things that are newer or move toward things that are more mature, or or developmentally appropriate, using a word like developmentally appropriate, if he likes it, it's appropriate, all right? And more often than not, if he likes it and wants to spend time doing it, it's, again, where he is. It's And we always have to start with what kids like and where they already are. We don't really start with a goal. We start with what they can already do and what they're already interested in. So join in what that child likes to do. If you're seeing children in not at home, in an office-based setting or in a school setting, if you're at preschool, Talk to the teacher about what he likes to do. Other than that, spend some time with him, looking at what he likes. See what he's attracted to. If if he's in your office and you really are kind of at a loss for what this kid likes to do, a lot of a lot of um, therapists, a lot of speech language pathologists who are experts will say, especially like let's think back to PECS, the Picture Exchange Communication System. They recommend. Um, that you spend some time, Frost and Bundy, at the beginning of that program determining motivators. That really, that's that's determining what a child likes, what he wants to do. And the way that they recommend that you do that is that you set out a whole bunch of stuff and see what the kid goes for. Now, in the original training videos, you might do that, you know, at a table if you're in a real clinical setting so that you're on one side of the table and the kid and his mom is on the other side and and you may set out three or four things, and again, look what he reaches for. That's what he wants. That's what you would use as a motivator. Same kind of premise if you're deciding with toys. I have seen other therapists who may, you know, again, kind of in a really clinical assessment situation, have a lot of toys out in the room just to see what a kid goes to, just to see, you know, if he passes by it, if he kind of looks at something and then tosses it aside, you know that that not really relevant for him. He doesn't like it or is not ready to do it for whatever reason. And that's okay. You're going to start with what you know the kid. That's why as a therapist too, even though I know there's so many state programs right now that really have prohibited therapists from using their own materials, that's why I still think it's a good idea to have a variety of things, if you can, so that you can explore what a kid might like to do. And sometimes it's just exposure. A child never has never seen bubbles before. Mom or dad haven't done that. And then you bring it out and try it, and they love it. It's their favorite thing. So that's certainly something you can try, too, particularly with children who have limited 
um, resources or limited exposure, limited opportunities to play with a variety of toys. Sometimes moms and dads will say, well, they don't really play with anything. And you look around and you think, well, no wonder because there's not a lot to play with here. And again, that's not an indictment of their ability to provide toys. That's just kind of the way it is for that particular family. And we work with what we have. Um, so sometimes, again, especially in those really limited circumstances, I think educating mom and dad with some different materials and some different toy options are, are always a good idea so that they kind of see what's out there and they can prioritize and make some different choices. And, you know, even if they're going to Goodwill or telling grandma or whatever, they're able to get some additional things for children to play with. And that's okay. You don't need to, you don't ha I don't feel like you have to justify that to anyone because you're really helping that family know what's developmentally appropriate for that child, particularly when they haven't known that or haven't been able to do anything about that yet. At least telling them and teaching them will certainly get them on the right track when circumstances change and they can um, do some different things about getting some developmentally appropriate toys. All right, let's move on to the next section. Boy, I'm going slow with this topic tonight. I hope we get through it in one show. The next thing that we do, the next idea for toddlers who don't sit still for speech therapy would be, and again, I would say this is hand in hand with the first one, you decrease demands so that a child doesn't feel forced to do anything beyond stay with you. Now, let me say that again. You have no other goal for a kid like play with you. He stay with you and he have a good time. You want, to, you want to ensure that he's having a good time, that he is staying with you. That's it. At this point, for a kid who doesn't like to sit still or stay with you or who runs from you or who, you know, you spend the whole session kind of trying to chase, don't start with forcing a sign or requiring a word or having them do anything other than stay. <laughs> and again, for some of you, this might be kind of a revelation. You don't have to have any other goal for that beyond that interaction one-on-one -on -one, or, you know, if you're with mom and you're or with siblings or whoever you're including in that session, your only goal is for the child to stay with you. And really, you may have to work on that for several sessions or, you know, weeks or dare I say months for some kids that that participation, happy, pleasant <laughs> participation is what you're really going for. This can dramatically help. Sometimes we really drive kids away, especially a speech pathologist, when we think the first day, the first minute that we see this child, it is going to speak no matter what. Guys, lots of our kids just can't take that much pressure. So when we reduce the demands, when we do not insist that they, you know, say this, tell me this, come on, come on, you can say it, you can do it. All those things we do, we've all done them. Sometimes when we back off that and we only think about, I just want him to stay with me. I just want him to like this. I want to see if I can get three minutes with him with this one toy before we move on. That's your only goal. And sometimes the only way to get there is not to require anything else. And in the beginning, this is enough, especially with our kids who are most significantly challenged with staying with you and and attending to 
something for longer than two seconds. So that's something that can really, 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 really work, particularly if you feel like if if you have a kid who had, is exhibiting some averse, what do I mean by that? If that's a new term for you, if you're a mom and you're thinking, what the heck is she talking about? That's a kid who is really kind of fighting you to get away or a kid who's crying, a kid who's doing, you know, who's emotionally upset because you're asking them to do some things. Guys, that is always, always, always a sign that what you're doing is overwhelming to them. Now, sometimes if you're a speech pathologist, and especially if you're new to early intervention and if you're new to working with young children, or working, maybe not, maybe it's just your temperament to kind of do this where you just insist that, this is the goal and this is what we're doing and this is the outcome and this is what I'm here to do and by goodness, you're going to do it. You kind of have to let that go because sometimes our over-insistence with compliance, with no matter what the goal is or the, the whatever you want to see, sometimes that is so, um, that kind of, do it or else mentality, even if the kid liked the activity, you're pushing too hard and too fast to get the sign or the word or whatever or the whatever you're trying to do. You're pushing so hard that the kid can't do it. And he goes into again fight or flight. And so he's either running away from you or those more challenging behaviors like um physically lashing out at you, hitting, biting throw you know throwing things at you pulling your hair that should be a big sign (laughs) that this is too much for this kid so what do you do it may be that you're not changing activities you're just changing your demands on the kid you're just backing off a little bit you're just having participation and interaction as your only goal for a while and again it may take longer than you would like it may take longer than mom would like but you have to always explain look We've got to get some interaction going here. We've got to get him happy. He's not going to learn anything from me. What words mean, how to say words, if you're working on signs, how to trade pictures, whatever you're going for. He's not going to learn it when he's so upset. He's not going to learn it when he's just mad. He's just not. All he can think about at that point is, I want to get out of here. I don't like it. And and know that and respect that and know that he's not going to learn how to do anything else when he's that dysregulated or out of control emotionally and that's just what it is so you have to back off and you have to again you may just work on him tolerating you being there with him and and playing with whatever he's playing with with him or whatever you're introducing with him you've got to get him happy and liking it first well before you can move on to having any demand so I hope that makes sense the third recommendation is really important for a lot of these kids especially in the beginning Don't sit. Have your activity be centered around moving. So you may do a gross motor game, or it may be that you're playing outside. Now, if you live in the Midwest right now and the East Coast, you're not outside. We're cold. We're freezing. (laughs) Some of you are blanketed in snow. There's just been a big snowstorm in Boston and really uh, New England. So so what do you do when you don't have those opportunities for outside play? A lot of families will have inside play uh, equipment like those little tight slides or something that you can do like that. I'll, or they may have a little trampoline, you know, just that one person little round trampoline or something with a bar that a kid can hold on to. Um, 
some families have pretty, with a lot of resources, have pretty elaborate swings and things set up. I've, I've seen some in-home gyms that I think, oh, my goodness, this is like the Olympics for toddlers here. <laughs> but not every family's like that. So what could you do for a gross motor activity with those kinds of kids? Well, certainly letting them run, having them, if mom, again, doesn't, doesn't care too much about this, you know, get up on the couch and jump down and back on and down and on and down. Anything like that, any other kind of little roughhouse game, any game where you're playing where you are um, like an airplane game where you're lifting them up, them up, you know, either with your hands or if you're adventurous enough to do it, put them on your feet as you're laying on your back and let them kind of fly like Superman. Anything like that where you're doing a gross motor movement with a specific toy like a swing or a slide or a trampoline or the social game component of that where moving is a part of the game. So we talked about airplane rides. So let's talk about something else. Like how about a game like Ring Around the Rosies? That and you're walking around. You do get to kind of control the tempo with that too. It's not quite like running through the house, but you can go pretty fast or pretty slow. A lot of times you'll really teach kids how to march really big during that game. So ring around the rosies where it's pretty paced where you're really stomping almost as you sing or chant each word there. That certainly has a big movement component. And I've gotten a lot of kids to play Ring Around the Rosies with me, even when they didn't really want to hold my hand or stay with me. Just that sometimes you can do it with being melodic and fun and kind of, um, you know, more rhythmic where you're really singing that. But some kids really like that chanting where you're really, and stomping, where you're really, you know, doing more like ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies. They like that almost better. Sometimes our kids with auditory sensitivities who can't tolerate somebody singing to them really respond to that chanting. And if you're really doing that kind of stomping with it or really, you know, landing pretty hard on your foot there when you're doing it and making it very rhythmic, They'll respond to that, and that gives their bodies lots of feedback as you're going in that circle and you're stomp they're stomping their little feet, or if you're running as you sing it, or you know, kind of going faster than a slow tempo there. They'll really, really like that. Other kinds of social games for moving as part of the game: row, row your boat. How do you play that? You put you sit on the floor or in a chair. But on the floor, with how I play it is uh, with my legs outstretched, and I put a kid on my knees. And I take the little hands and we row back and forth. You can do ride a little horsey the same way, where you're holding your little hands as they sit on your, your legs there, your knees, and you're bouncing them. And again, you made movement part of that routine. And, and your only goal right now is for them to stay with you. Now, over time, you'll move to eventually get to the point where they'll say a word or fill in a word. But really for right now, for a lot of these kids, your only goal should be that attention piece and that interaction piece and them wanting to do it with you three times, four times, 17 times. You may be sick of it <laughs> before a kid can be finished with it. And if that's the case, that's perfect. That one piece alone is what we should be measuring for that kind of child. So that's certainly something you could do. Um, another Thing that you might try that I like to do with these kids is use a toy that would involve moving. So certainly instead of sitting there with bubbles, you know, you're sitting there on the floor in a chair and he's sitting 
don't play bubbles like that. That's kind of boring. Play bubbles where your boat's up, where you're scanning up, or even if you're sitting where he's up and popping. I like to do a lot of that uh, bubbles as I'm on my knees or I'm ready, I'm even standing, kind of ready to move. Um, so certainly, and I, another trick that I've talked about here on the show before, but that I'll I'll mention again is you may not teach a child to calmly pop a bubble with his index finger. You can kick bubbles. You can clap the bubbles to pop them. You can slap them, you know, as the bubble's about to hit the floor. Really model, pound in that bubble with your hand down. You know, come down with a really hard slap so that it, as you pop the bubble and a kid can get that that feedback in his little hand as he slaps the floor. Other things that I do with bubbles that toddlers really love, I like to pow the bubbles. Have you heard me say that before? If you've listened to the show before, that's where you're really kind of punching the bubbles and saying, pow, pow, pow. My goodness, two-year-olds, little boys, and girls love that. They love that. They think that is hysterical. A lot of times you'll even get that word as you pal your bubbles, that little exclamatory word. That may be the first imitation of an early um, word that you may hear from a little friend because you've brought what he likes into that play routine. You've, you've done something with movement. You've made it fun. And before he knows it, he's, he's popped out a word. So think about that. Other kinds of things that you can do, other kinds of uh, axe allergy. Have you had a kid with a latex allergy that you played with the balloon? Not so fun. They'll break out in hives right in front of you. I know that from personal experience. I hate that. I hated that that happened to that sweet little girl. Uh, but they didn't know, and I didn't know either. She had never been exposed to that before. Now they knew that was years and years ago. But balloons are fun for kids to jump around and chase and catch and throw and all kinds of fun. And certainly you're involving movement with you. Rolling a ball. Now some of you, for some of our little friends, that's just too boring. And they're not going to sit on one side of the room or roll a ball two feet. You're going to have to get 10 feet or 20 feet away from them before that's any kind of fun. And you're going to have to roll that ball pretty hard. It's not going to be something that you're going to, that's going to look all um, sweet. <laughs> For some kids, you've got to really increase kind of the, the power there so that you're doing something pretty darn novel. And a kid may kick a ball back and forth with you that wouldn't throw it back and forth or that wouldn't roll it back and forth or he may throw it back and forth when rolling was just frankly boring to him. But that might be something you could try. I like other toys, uh, launcher toys. I know I've mentioned this before. There's a Hot Wheels set that's a motorcycle that it comes with two motorcycles and a base and you pull the lever back and the motorcycle shoot across the room so much fun. The kid can't really operate it by himself. He has to have adult help to get the lever in the right spot and then pull it back. So he automatically needs you for this activity. Voila, you've created a reason for you to be there. So that interaction piece is there. But movement's built in because he's going to run and get the motorcycle from wherever it lands and then bring it back for y'all to do it again. So that's a good toy. Rockets, those birthday party launcher rocket kinds of toys. You can get those at Target or Walmart or Toys R Us, anywhere kind of that sells birthday favors on the birthday aisle. Look for those little packs of rockets. A lot of them you'll pop with your, you'll pop it on your hand. You'll you'll push it on your hand so it's kind of air 
propelled, or there are some that you can, they're called stomp. So you have to push the little activator with your foot to make the rocket fly, but anything like that. Uh, there's a new set of, they used to, the toys used to be called sky dancers. I don't know what they're called now. There's some kind of fairy. But look over like in the Barbie doll aisle, but there's a newer toy out where the doll flies. Now, there used to be a toy like this called sky dancer, and I, it was recalled. I think kids got their eyes poked out or something like that. Um, hopefully, this newer version is safer, but same premise. You pull the lever, and the toy flies away. Kids love that so much fun. But again, they can't do it without your help. But the movement part is naturally involved there. They have to run and go get it wherever wherever it lands and then bring it back to you so you can do it again. Other kinds of movement toys that you could improvise, especially if you're not taking toys in a family's home. I play basketball with kids with or without the darn hoop. <laughs> a lot of families will have those little basketball goals, especially if you live in the Midwest and are basketball crazy like we all are in Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio and all of these, Michigan, all of these surrounding states. We all love basketball. Um, but even if you don't have a hoop, you can make one. Do it with a laundry basket. Don't have a ball? Who cares? Roll up some socks. You know, teach your mom how to do that kind of play. And again, your premise here is you put the basket away from the child and you try to throw your ball or your socks or your rolled up paper, <laughs> paper ball in that basket and again you just want a kid your goal here is for him to stay with you and want to do it over and over and over and you can certainly over time work in your language goals whether that's a receptive goal as following your directions or your learning to understand new words like action words throw kick push pull all those things you can do in the context of a movement kind of game Certainly your expressive goals or your, even earlier than that, your signs, your gestures, you can work all of that in. And again, you don't have to do it the first session or two with a kid who doesn't want to stay with you. Your only goal at the beginning is to get him to want to be with you for longer and longer and longer periods of time. Other things that you may do, work on structured teaching tasks. That's called the TEACH method. It's T-E-A-C-C-H. This is from North Carolina's autism program, the state of North Carolina, the uh, kind of uh, – this method uses structured teaching tasks, meaning that we don't do a lot of language here. These are visually based, usually cognitively oriented tasks, meaning that a child is sorting or putting something in a container or somehow – using a skill like matching, um, and their, our whole motivation with these kinds of tasks or these kinds of activities is to develop a child's ability to pay attention, to stay with the task, and to complete the task before he moves on to something else. Now, I've done whole shows about this, so I'm not really going to talk a lot about it tonight, but um, Google that. Or search it on Teach Me to Talk. I've called it structured tasks, I believe. So you can certainly get some more information about that there. If you're a Pinterest fan <laughs> and spend lots and lots of time on Pinterest, time on Pinterest, uh, go to TeachMeToTalk.com's page and look for boards that say Teach again, T E A C C H, or Structured Teaching. Or I have a whole board called For My Little Friend. And when I 
first really started using teach tasks, I had a little guide, that, and this is how his mom and I would find ideas for him for activities to make. But again, it's, an, it's primarily nonverbal, and that it's primarily used at the beginning with children with autism, but now it's used with all kinds of kids. We're, we're really teaching them to do kind of a repetitive task, but the whole purpose is so that they learn to complete one whole activity before they move on to something else. And for it, this is necessary for every child, but for our kids who have really, really strong visual interest, it's a great way to get them involved. And I've done, again, a show, a podcast or two about this, so that's something you might search in our archives as well. Over time, what we want to do with kids that are like this is we want to adapt a move-set, move-set philosophy for how we structure our sessions with them. So that might mean that we do an activity like bubbles. And then we sit down and we play with something else. We might play with trains or something that's more of a sit-down activity. And then when the child is finished with that, we're going to get up. We're not going to really introduce another sit-down activity. We'll get up and maybe play a game like Ring Around the Rosies or I might chase them to and you know around the room several times for five minutes or whatever we do. And then we go back and sit down and we might do um, Play-Doh or, you know, whatever your sit-down activity is that you can entice a child with or like a sensory box, something, again, that he would get a lot of feedback from. And then when he's tired of that, what do we do? We get up and we move again. Um, We might do, uh, again, you know, play the basketball stuff we talked about. Or if he really needs a change of environment, we'll move to a totally new room where we're moving to get there. But then once we're there, we sit down and we do something else. So we're really adopting that move, sit, move, sit, move, sit philosophy. That's kind of what you want to move to. One other, I've got three more things that I want to get in. We're kind of in the last few minutes of the show, but I want to finish it. Um, One thing we can do too is, to really modify the space that we're working with the child in so that movement is less of an option. Now, this does not mean belt the kid in a high chair <laughs> because kids who need to move need to move. And they may move that darn entire high chair uh, in an effort to show you how much they need to move or do, you know, scream at the top of their lungs till you let them out. So that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about putting a kid maybe in a corner where you use your legs so that your legs are kind of outstretched there. Or or if you're taking toys in your bag of toys, so that you kind of block his access and you kind of turn him around so that he's not able <laughs> to get away and move as frequently. Other things might be that you are in a hall where, um, again, movement, you're at the end of a hall. You're kind of in between him and the hall. So you uh, and his way out of that hall. So you limit his things. Sometimes you may have to go to a smaller room and just not having the option to run in a big, big, big open living area is something you can do. If you're in a clinic setting, you may need to treat him in a smaller treatment room rather than going to the gym or go to the gym first and then move back to a smaller treatment room so that that, that availability of him being able to run away from you isn't as um, 
you know, he doesn't have access to that because you've kind of got him limited a little bit. So that might be something you could do. I've worked with children before in smaller spaces. I had a little guy a long time ago, and if you've come to any of my courses or the course Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, I show a clip of a little guy that I worked with in a closet. His mom cleared out that space because they had a big three-story house and toys and beautiful things that he wanted to see all over that gigantic house. And putting him in that smaller space was, was really beneficial for him because it, it really limited what he could see. And, guys, he didn't really try to get out of the closet. Once we were in there, we were in. Now, I didn't really shut the door. We didn't, you know, lock ourselves in or anything. But just having that that confined little space to let him know this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to stay. And he sat beautifully, much, much better in that setting than he did up in his gigantic first floor of his home where he wanted to run all over everywhere. So that might be certainly something that you can try. Uh, let me let me make two final suggestions here. Don't try to do strategies that are intended for older children like using something like an if-when statement. Sometimes you'll read some uh, suggestions for kids like this and, and they'll say, tell you to say, if you sit and play this with me, then we can get up and go do what you want to do. That really doesn't work with developmentally, um, with toddlers with developmental language issues, particularly if they have a hard time understanding language too. That That's too mature for them. That's beyond where they're able to understand. And that whole delayed gratification, <laughs> one and two and three-year-olds don't get that. Sometimes 48-year-olds don't get that, okay? <laughs> so how can we expect a two-year-old to get that? So so save that for later. Our little friends, many times they do not understand that promise, okay? So don't um, don't look at that strategy right now. Last recommendation would be reinforce sitting. What do I mean by that? Sometimes a strategy like ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis, really in the beginning they teach kids to sit because they are giving them what they want to sit, and sometimes that approach works so, so, so well, meaning that you reinforce them for sitting, meaning that if they are sitting down, they get to do what they want to do. Could be, let's take it out of context of ABA. If it's something that they absolutely love, the only way that they get access to it is if they're going to sit with you. And so you play with that spinny light toy only when you're a part of it and only when you're both sitting down. <laughs> it could be um, snacks. You may have them sit with you. And you play a little and then you give them a goldfish because that's what they really like. And then you play, you know, for 30 more seconds and then you give them another goldfish. You're really reinforcing them sitting there with you and staying with you. If they get up and run away, they don't have access to the snacks anymore. The only time they get it is when they're there with you. Do you understand how that would work for some kids? And again, not every toddler. They won't all be like that, but it's certainly something that you can think about and that you can use to your advantage. All right, we're at the end of the show. I hope that you've gotten some ideas for toddlers who don't like to stay with you for you to work with them, whether you're a mom or uh, whether you're a pediatric uh, speech pathologist or developmental teacher person. 
I hope that I've given you some things to try. I'd love to hear your feedback. So if you have some additional things that work super for you, you'd like to share, uh, send it to me. You can always email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com or better yet, leave me a comment. Reply right there on the site um, under this post or anywhere else you would want to put it. I love to hear feedback from listeners and from folks to uh read my things there at teachmeyourtalk.com. All right, that's it for tonight. Thank you so 